Esther chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is, the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give ten thousand talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then, on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people of all Haman's all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Thanks, Alistair. Good evening, everyone. Really good to see you. Thank you for coming. As Calvin mentioned, my name's Ellen, and uh, I'm a minister here on the team. And uh, great to share 
a few thoughts from God's word with you this evening. We're so well served, aren't we, with people who can read the scriptures so well and with people who can lead us in worship so well, don't you think? I thought we could show some appreciation to our teams. They don't do it for the praise, do they? But it's good just to recognise how fantastically we are served. Um, Have you noticed in your new sheet, I noticed it was mentioned that today is Palindrome Sunday. It was Ken that alerted us to this. You've been a bit too interested in this, Ken, haven't you, I think? But okay. Some of you love it, don't you? It's 02022020 this Sunday. So you can spend the rest of the sermon working out when the next one of those will be. Or you could listen to my thoughts about Esther chapter three. For myself, I'm just glad to be in February. Does anybody else feel like January was seriously seven weeks long? Was it not? It felt like it went on for absolutely ever. Here we are. I'm glad to be with you at the beginning of February on Palindrome Sunday, looking at a complicated passage in Esther chapter three. Happy days. It's really good to look at this together. I've enjoyed the last two Sundays working our way through the book of Esther. And just a reminder of where we find ourselves as we look at this chapter together. If you want to grab it, I think it was page 500 and something. 503, thank you. Just in case you want to follow through as we're picking through, it's quite a complicated story, 503. Um, A reminder of where we find ourselves. The events in this story take place in... Persia during the reign of King Xerxes. It's been over 100 years since the beginning of the exile and some Jews have returned to Jerusalem. The story revolves around the lives of four main characters, King Xerxes, Esther, her uncle Mordecai and a new character that we meet here in chapter three tonight, Haman, the king's highest noble. And we're going to look at him in a bit more detail this evening. One of the themes that's come over loud and clear in the messages that we've heard so far on the first two chapters is that while God isn't mentioned by name at all in Esther, and that's an interesting and unusual thing that in the book of Esther, God isn't mentioned at all by name, that even though that's true, actually he is still the protagonist in the story, that God is the silent main character Weaving through this whole story is the theme that God is working in the lives and the circumstances of his people to bring about his plans. And actually, it would just do us good as we look at chapter three, just to hold that reminder there right at the beginning. We're about to meet an evil man, Haman, who plots to destroy a whole nation. The very worst of human pride and human character is to be seen in him. And it's good as we look at the details of that, just to hold this bigger overarching story that stretches over the book of Esther, that actually God's purposes won't be thwarted, that he might not be seen, but he's still very much at work in his world. So here we are, four years after Esther has become the queen. And we're introduced to Haman. The beginning of our chapter, um, chapter three, verse one, uh, tells us, after these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. 
So this man, Haman, has been given a massive promotion. He's made second only to the king himself. But this promotion isn't good news for Mordecai, and it's certainly not good news for the Jewish people. And one of the things that struck me when I read this chapter through a few times is how much uh, power and influence and power dynamics there are at play here. All four main characters in the whole of the wider story here have got a significant amount of power and influence. In our chapter, Esther is absent. She reappears in chapter four. So for our chapter, there are three men here, all with power and influence of some sort. And we see that expressed and used in different ways for the good and for the bad. And I just want to explore that a little bit this evening and see what we can learn. So just to help us into that, before we look at how that plays out with these three men, just have a minute with your neighbour on these questions. What are some word associations that come to mind when you hear the words power and when you hear the word influence? What do you think the difference is between power and influence? What comes to mind? Just have a minute with your neighbour on those questions and then we'll think about that together. Okay, so there's no right or wrong answer. This is a word association game. Just tell me the sorts of things you or your neighbour were saying. What comes to mind when you hear the word power? Any, anything at all? What kind of words or phrases with the word power? Abuse? Corruption? Bullying? Hierarchy. Hierarchy. Excellent. What about the word influence? Subtle. Oh, Dennis, you've read my sermon. Brilliant. Good. Anything else? Good or bad? Choice. And anything you were saying about the difference between those two as you could understand it? Power is more forceful than influence. Excellent. One is obvious and one isn't always obvious. Brilliant, that's really helpful. Thank you so much. There were some similarities, I guess, with power and influence. Both of them, I wonder, are actually a consequence and an outworking of having authority. Actually, they're natural traits that follow if you have or if you're given authority. But the difference, as some of those things you've mentioned, comes when you see how that plays out, how that approach to leadership plays out in relationships or teams or groups. One definition of power is this, the authority to change the behaviour of others and make them do things they might not do otherwise and influence the ability to alter other people's perceptions of a situation. So with power, there is this idea that actually sometimes it is more aggressive. There isn't the option to not comply. There is a coercion behind it uh, and negative assumptions there, whereas influence is more subtle. The possibility of it being good or bad to use positive behaviours maybe to change the desired outcome. This was the summary from a piece of research that took place last year looking at how power works in teams, particularly work teams. Power forces people to complete a task where influence helps them understand why that task is necessary. 
Now, of course, it's all more nuanced than that, depending on the situation. But actually, there's a helpful starting point framework there, because power in our assumption and understanding is so often a problem. We see it all around us, in our world leaders, in our uh, workplaces, in relationships or friendship groups. You see it in some churches. Thank God we have very little issue with power dynamics here, but power used badly is everywhere. People using power rather than influence to their own ends. And we see both power and influence played out in Esther 3. And what I want to do is look at each of the characters, Haman and King Xerxes and Mordecai, and just pick out some insights from each of them, giving the most time to Haman because he takes up the most room in this chapter and is spectacularly awful. Uh, But look at each of them and see what we can learn. So let's just start with Haman. We're introduced to this man whose hatred and whose abusive use of power throws the empire into confusion and brings the Jewish people to the brink of disaster. We're told in verse 2 he's an Agagite. Haman was descended from King Agag, uh, king of the Amalekites, who fought against the Jews during the time of King Saul. But the animosity between the Amalekites and the Jews goes all the way back to the time of Moses. So you've got to see here that Haman has got all these ancestral seeds of Jewish hatred in him. And then when you add that to his own pride and ego, and the recipe is only ever going to be disaster. And he's furious that Mordecai won't bow down to him. Verse five, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. So the king had said that everyone was to bow down and Mordecai refused. Verse six, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. A completely disproportionate response to his anger with one man. It's quite timely. (laughs) If anybody else wants to drop a metal water bottle... What do we do when we see power being wielded so terribly? I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at the world around me and actually I can feel a bit of despair. Verse 15, the end of of Esther 3, it says the whole of Susa was bewildered. Well, I can look around at the world and some of the dark places, some of the questionable leaders, and actually I feel bewildered and helpless. And if I let myself, I can feel fearful. It's interesting timing that here in Esther 3, a plot rises to bring about the extermination of a nation of Jews. And at the beginning of this week, it was Holocaust Memorial Day, marking 75 years since the liberation of Auschwitz. These are scenes in Auschwitz. 200 survivors returned to Auschwitz with a whole bunch of political leaders to mark that anniversary. Uh, Ken was in London on Monday representing our denomination at a special memorial service in recognition of the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. 1.3 million Jews sent to Auschwitz. Six million estimated killed 
during World War II. And of course, memorials like this uh, are held in part to look back and to remember and remember all those who lost their lives, but of course also to seek to learn lessons from the past. Hitler's power regime may have been extreme, but actually I look around at the world around me today and some of the seeds of that are alive and well. Genocide doesn't start nowhere, does it? And we can see an increase in fear of others, of discrimination, the language of hatred and exclusion. In the face of power that is used so disproportionately, like it is in some places in the world, we can feel bewildered and helpless and fearful and therefore do nothing. But the book of Esther, as we shall see in coming weeks, is far from a story about doing nothing. Many of you will have heard of this man and know of Sir Nicholas Winton. He rescued 669 mostly Jewish children from Nazi-occupied Europe. He, rec he rescued them from uh, Czechoslovakia, found homes for them and organised their safe passage to Britain. And uh, he's been around a lot on social media. You may well have seen the clip that I'm about to show you. It's dated, and I've seen it loads of times, and you may well have as well, but I think it bears showing again. Uh, Sir Nicholas Winton's work went unnoticed for 50 years until the light, late 1980s when um, the BBC TV programme That's Life highlighted his work. As an aside, I used to love That's Life. <laughs> Esther Ranson and... An, was it a Sunday night? I don't know. Anyway, I just, I've got memories of me and Esther Ranson and That's Life and watching it every week. But on, on, on the, That's Life, this is in the 80s, they highlighted the work of Sir Nicholas Winton for the first time. And in this clip, he's present in the, um, in the audience and she starts to talk about the list of names of children um, that he rescued. Have a watch of this. It's only a couple of minutes long. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? Because, of course, every... Uh, face, every person who stood up is an individual whose lives were saved by that man. 669 children is an incredible thing compared to 6 million Jews who were killed. It could feel like a drop in the ocean, but Sir Nicholas Winton did what he could in the face of power wielded in the most unspeakable way. And he was quoted as saying this, don't be content in your life just to do no wrong. Be prepared every day to try and do some good. Haman was evil. You know, who could stop his plot? Our world has some dark places with some leaders intent on evil and causing harm and some individuals intent on causing harm. And actually, even in our own country, where the rhetoric and the language used about some other fellow human beings bearing the image of God is just so wrong and it can feel just too great, what can we do? Well, we learn from the past and we stand against power that promotes hate, not just not doing no wrong, but doing what we can in our own way to do some good for the ones and the twos around us and in our community. As we're here post-Brexit, Whatever side of the fence we found ourselves on, here we are where we are today. And we can work for the good and for unity and respect 
and for the best, for the most in need. Along with this idea about what we do when we see power wielded so terribly and how we just do what we can do to make a difference to the ones and the twos, there are also some other good reminders from seeing how Haman uses his power. It's just a reminder, isn't it, how insidious and destructive pride can be. Haman was proud and greedy. You look in that passage, there was, a, it was, uh, there was money invested there. There was greed at play. And when, when there's power, when we have power, with a lack of contentment and a bit of pride, that's a real breeding ground for power to go wrong. And it's just a reminder that we need to be praying for leaders and for those in authority. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for kings and all those in authority over us. And later on, towards the end of our service, we'll have a chance to do that. Prayer is the best thing that we can do and it's never wasted. So Haman gets most of the screen time in this chapter, but he only does what he does because of the influence of the king, King Xerxes. We see in King Xerxes someone who makes irresponsible decisions. I don't know how decisive you are. I, um, I feel like I'm a funny hybrid about decision-making. If something is significant and important. I'm actually pretty decisive. I don't tend to hang around. I'm not really a procrastinator. I'd rather get something done. Pretty decisive. If it's something that isn't a particularly big deal, I am the world's worst ditherer. So this week I've been in the opticians choosing a new pair of glasses. I wear contacts most of the time. I never wear the glasses. But nevertheless, I was in there for so long, I thought the person was going to combust um, the amount of time I took trying on, you know, 47 pairs of exactly the same looking glasses before I made my choice. And I'm already thinking I don't particularly like them. Um, if I go into a car park, if there's like 100 spare spaces, does anyone do this? I just drive around wondering which space to park in. I saw a great example of bad decisions with parking. Look at this. <laughs> that made me feel a whole lot better. That's where trolleys live, but no, I shall put my car there. Brilliant. Part of being entrusted with any kind of authority that leads to power, that leads to influence, is that decision-making is in our hands. If you've got any kind of authority in any situation, part of what you have is power and influence to make decisions, and sometimes those are significant decisions. Now, Xerxes might not have been inherently evil like Haman was, but he, what he did was he abdicated his power and his influence, and so he's got to take some responsibility. He promotes Haman, and then when Haman comes to him with this plan, um, this plan to kill the people of God, he agrees to that with very little thought, very, very careless. If you look in verse eight, note that the Jews aren't even named as a race. And um, he talks about a certain, Haman says that a certain people, a certain people, he doesn't ask what group it is that are to be destroyed. He passes over Mordecai in promoting Haman and he carelessly passes a law that will end up with countless deaths, including the queen that he professes to love. Love. And in verse 10, when the king gives Haman his signet ring, that's the equivalent of his signature, his kind of seal of approval of the plan. You know, we need to be careful with any kind of power that we might have. We might not be deliberately destructive or, or wield power disproportionately like Haman, but actually we might well make decisions like Xerxes without 
thinking things through. We might be careless with the authority and influence that's been entrusted with us that ends up having significant consequences. Xerxes lost touch with reality and with the people that he was supposed to be leading. That can happen to us too. And if we've been given any kind of authority or responsibility, that needs careful handling and to be held with humility. I wonder what you make of these duos in terms of how much power or influence they have and what they're doing with it. Harry and Meghan, not making a, a judgment comment on them. Actually, I'm very sympathetic in many ways towards them. But when you've got influence, you can't make decisions that only affect you, can you? And interestingly, they're giving up the authority and influence that they have, the choice they're making. What about this duo, Trump and Greta Thunberg? This was, you may have seen this story at the UN climate summit in New York the week before last and uh, Greta Thunberg makes a whole speech about environmental issues and Donald Trump without mentioning her by name uh, cuts down cuts her down in his speech and this would be a, a fascinating case study on power dynamics at play and those who hold authority and influence in different ways and actually the more authority you have the more careful you need to be with it. You may have been on the receiving end of bad decisions or poor use of power. And I'm conscious there, are, there will certainly be likely people here who actually are, are bruised from power used badly. Maybe in a work scenario, maybe in a relationship or friendship group scenario, maybe from someone that you... Uh, trusted and were close to, maybe from somebody who's senior to you in some situation. And actually, God knows about that and he sees that. And we'd want to pray for any of us who are feeling that sense of wounding and bruising from authority used badly, power used badly in our own lives and situations, unfair decisions, careless decisions for us. The model of Jesus using power is entirely different. You know, all the words, associations with power were all negative that you threw out there. But of course, we worship Jesus as the powerful one, don't we? The true King of Kings. No greater name we sang earlier. Paul said in Philippians 2, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. This this Jesus who we worship as the one with true authority. He never grasped at it, never used it for his own ends. He used it instead to serve. And that's our model with any influence that we have. And that's our go-to. He is our go-to for healing. When we look at Mordecai, here is someone who experienced exactly that. He was at the receiving end of power used badly. Mordecai was the one who discovered the plot to kill the king in chapter two. He saved the king's life, but he's passed over for promotion and he ends up being on the end of Haman's fury. It's interesting that Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. We know that he, he refused that daily and it was that that infuriated Haman so much. And verse four hints at the reason why. It says that Mordecai had told them he was a Jew Bowing wasn't a particularly religious act. It was, it was a kind of social protocol thing, really, much like curtsying to the queen. So it seems unlikely that he refused 
to bow down for religious reasons. It wasn't that he wasn't wanting to bow down to anybody. It was that he wasn't wanting to bow down to Haman, a sworn enemy of God's people. He wanted to honour God, regardless of the personal consequences to himself. As we look at Mordecai from this perspective of power and influence, there are some lessons from him too. Life is unfair, but we're to honour God anyway. And that's hard, and it will take courage and grit, but it's important, and it's worth it, and God will honour it. And we also see here that when wrong decisions are made, we're called not to compromise, actually to maintain our allegiance to Jesus. In your frontline place, wherever you find yourself tomorrow, what does it look like to stand up for Jesus and to honour him, even when that might be hard to do so? Jesus is our model in the way that he handled and used power. And we can pray that he helps us become more like him. We'll see through the rest of the Esther story that God, the silent main character, uses people who want to follow him with loyalty to bring his purposes about. Amen. Amen.